Los Angeles listeners, we've got two unbelievable live shows coming up. First, Dead Pilot Society, September 25th at Largo at the Coronet. Uh, you guys know what Dead Pilot Society is. It's where we do stage readings of pilots that were bought and developed but never shot, so they're finally getting their chance in the sun. We have pilots this month by Steve Agee and Rob Schraub. Steve, of course, hilarious comedian, actor, uh, and Rob Schraub is the co-creator of the Sarah Silverman program on which Steve appeared. Uh, it's a great, unbelievable, funny script by Steve uh, based on his own experiences of going to military school as a teenager. And then we've got another really funny script from Samantha McIntyre, a writer from Married, uh, and her first feature is going to be Brie Larson's directorial debut. Uh, and Samantha wrote this terrific script about um, life at a uh, roller rink, the people who work there. Both are worth checking out. That's on September 25th at Largo. Also at Largo, November 6th, mark your calendar, the 300th episode of the Writers' Panel. We're doing a live one. We're bringing back lots of our favorite guests. Should be a lot of fun. Find tickets for both of those at writerspanel.tumblr.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'll be posting uh, about the cast for Dead Pilots and as well as the, the ticketing link. Hope to see you guys there. Thanks, as always, for listening. Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner, Ben Acker, for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, uh, and follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Great. Uh, I've got Sam Esmail. Thank you for talking to me. Of course. The people to be. have been demanding it. Great. <laughs> you, I think you may be the voice of the people. No. I'm sure there are lots of great, but I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad that the people uh, that people want to hear about Mr. Robot in the show. Do you think there's, and this is like, you know, I'm sure you've talked about this with the press, but is there something particularly zeitgeisty about Mr. Robot? Like, is there a reason that people, I think, especially young people, are latching on to this show now? Well, I think you know the one thing I I, I really can't begin to even deconstruct why people are responding to the show because I don't, I don't understand that part of it. But the one thing that I do know that was intentional was that we wanted to make the show about today, about specifically about uh, modern day society and, and in the context of technology. And I always like to look at it as a period piece mm-hmm. of our present day um, and, and, and because specifically we, we deal a lot with technology and as you know 
in a couple of years, all the stuff that's on the show is going to be dated. Mm-hmm. But we wanted to embrace that, and we wanted to explore the themes that are, are kind of, um, you know, very specific to uh, our present day, and not and and very unique to our present day and, and our situation. And I think that sort of um, fixation is probably the thing that people may may feel is a little unique to our show. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's interesting to think of it in that context. And we're basically talking about two things. One is the thematic element, and right. the other is sort of the the tone and look and feel of the show. Right. Which is funny to hear that, you know, it, it does feel like a period piece about now. Right, right, right. Is that something, and this is a real, like, sort of nuts and bolts question, but is that something you get across, you can get across in a pilot? Like, how do you present that to people? Well, I think we we just do it in all the in in every aspect, and it's in and in, in every detail. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, there's a scene in um, in uh, in the Colonel Panic episode uh, of this season, of the second season, where um, I have a character, uh, Dom uh, Dominique DePiro, and she's in her bed and she's watching whatever reality show on a streaming service while she's also on her phone <laughs> going through reading an article right. and then asking her Amazon Echo what time it is. So it's that existence, which is an existence I'm familiar with and uh, <laughs> some of my friends are familiar with. Um, it's those details. So that's its performance. It's the way we shot that. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the props. It's the, it's the production design of the apartment and the, and the makeup of all that. It's all that stuff that kind of... Uh, the little details that kind of um, make it very specific. It's so funny. I mean, it, it's if you saw something like that, if you saw on Mad Men someone smoking a cigarette and you know frying up fat and <laughs> doing a third thing indicative of 1960, right. you would say, "I don't believe this." Right, 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 right. <laughs> Which is, it's kind of an amazing approach, you know, to take this thing that's so familiar and make it at once foreign and also sort of present it to us you know what I mean right and but but presented to you in a way that I don't think we tr- we uh, hopefully we don't try and be uh, heavy handed about it mm-hmm. and we we, we, we mm-hmm. definitely we think it's just a slice of uh, uh, honestly of how people uh, are 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 dealing or addressing their loneliness I mean that, that that's one of the purposes of that scene is that uh, and, and it actually goes for all of our characters is that we don't really have a lot of relationship drama mm-hmm. people are by themselves usually and that's a very hard thing to dramatize yeah. and that's why it's so crucial to get those details right because I think that's the thing that people can latch onto in those scenes absolutely. because they can relate to it you know yeah absolutely um, what is why do you enter into a show like this? I mean, like you say, loneliness is hard to dramatize. Right. <laughs> Why set up that challenge for yourself? What, Be- what were you looking to do with this show? I, I, I honestly, I felt that what, what I was watching, um, and t- stuff that I love, movies and TV shows, um, it, there was something missing that was not reflecting my experience. And, um, and, and that of my friends and sort of you know the the uh, uh, the, the experience I, I've heard th- through my family and friends or whatever. You know, like it didn't feel reflective of this time, and so 
I, and, I, and I understood why. I mean, again, it goes back to it's hard to dramatize, but that's where I found it very interesting and the, the, the challenge to take something like that on and say, well, wait a minute, there must be a way to tell this story. And the, the thing that makes it hard to dramatize is probably the thing that makes it that much more interesting. And so, sure. and so that's how we delved into it. And it also kind of dovetailed into, you know, the other kind of passion I have for this was to talk about hacker subculture in a way that wasn't hokey <laughs> and, and which I've been used to seeing in, in, in movies and, and, and TV shows so I wanted to explore that in a real way and then you know loneliness and hacker subculture kind of go hand in hand Absolutely. to a large extent um, so it kind of was a perfect marriage but you're, you are setting yourself up in this very it feels like in, and I don't know about how this show came to be and I want to talk about that in a sec but like with this premise, with these characters, you're setting yourself up for a huge challenge uh, in that, you know, hackers and loneliness, these are isolated characters that it may be hard to, for a viewer to latch onto. I think it's, an, it's a fun thing to write, certainly, right. but I feel like there's a, a wall for the viewer. Yeah, and, um, and, and uh, honestly, that's, that's something that I can't ever reverse engineer. Yeah. I'm, I can't um, ever go into a project and think, how do I get people to watch this or read this or be entertained by this? Yeah. The only thing I can do is be as accurate and as honest as I can about the story that I'm telling and hope that people relate to at least the emotional journey of it. Um, and then hope people will be entertained by it. And I can only go off of what I find interesting, what I find compelling. And 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 hopefully it all works. I mean, honestly, one of the things going into the into the show was I was happy if it was just a cult hit. I mean, like I want that was my hope was that <laughs> we could just be a little cult hit. We'd fly under the radar, and it would justify our existence and we'd get <laughs> uh, get multiple seasons. And I could tell the story. Um, the fact that it's gotten anything more than that is all gravy, and I'm very grateful and humbled and. All. And, and all of that, but I, I, for me, it's like I just try and be as honest as I can about my what I find interesting and entertaining. Well, that's that's all we can do, right? That's yeah. where the best stuff comes. Absolutely. From. I mean, I think the minute you try and cross that line into engineering it for uh, mass consumption is when it becomes a slippery slope. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, and the tricky part, it seems to me, is. It's not, it's not as if it's easy to be honest on the page, but I think as writers we can do that. Right. The hard part feels like selling it. Right. You know, how do you get... I have no idea. Like, <laughs> I how, mean... How did this show... Where, where did it start? Did you write it? Did you pitch it? What, how did it begin? Well, you know, I, I initially, I, um, I, when I had done my feature comic, I wanted to write another feature to kind of follow up mm-hmm. and, and direct. And... Um, and so I started. I had always in my in the back of my head had this idea to, to write about this hacker uh, a group, and 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 um, and I started writing the feature. I went pen and paper, and um, it, I got it got really out of hand and long. <laughs> and um, and my manager uh, Chad Hamilton, who's also uh, an EP on the show, uh, they, uh, anonymous content, the company they they had just made True Detective, and I watched. Uh, True Detective, and I was sort of blown away by it, and um, and then so it kind of made sense. 
um, to turn Mr. Robot into a, a TV show, which I had mm. zero, little, basically no experience. <laughs> um, I had just done this one small indie feature, yeah. and I've never stepped foot in a writer's room or anything. Um, and I turned what I had into a pilot, and, um, and we sold it. I just got really lucky. That's wild. Yeah. Um, let me, let's step back for a sec. Um, what about True Detective made you think, I could take this material that I've done and make it into a TV show? Well, I think True Detective was, um, there's something about True Detective that felt uh, very risky and very dangerous. Um, there was an element of uh, really sort of bold storytelling technique. Um, it had mood and atmosphere, and it and it sort of allowed itself to indulge itself in that atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I I love that. I love uh, not just movies or, or TV, anything uh, you know, novels or um, any piece of art that could create atmosphere and tone. I actually sure. think that's pro- you know um, one of the one of the most important things uh, uh, when you're trying to tell a story is to set that mood and True Detective just did that uh, so elegantly and then and then the story was just it just had this sense of real danger and real urgency and um, and, and you know TV for me growing up and watching TV that was not the place for danger yeah. TV was the place for comfort you know <laughs> what I mean um, and so that's kind of where my mind stayed uh, and, and it came to TV, and then of course, yeah, obviously, I, I, I didn't have my head in the sand. I uh, saw lots of great shows up at that point, you know, Sopranos and uh, Mad Men. But the, you know, the other thing is, is that you know, TV was even with those shows, as great as they were, they were still very not. I wouldn't say procedural, but you were very much living uh, a sort of a slice of life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it was about a family, and you kind of grew up with that family, or it was about an office, and you kind of grew up with those, those co-workers. Um, Mr. Robot was very much a story, one singular story. True Detective was also one singular story, and it was limited, but it, it was that and Breaking Bad, which I also kind of attribute to, my, to, to me being kind of compelled to turn Mr. Robot into a TV show, um, it was very singular in its narrative. It was, it literally, they just took five seasons to tell it, but yeah. they told the story a, a singular story from beginning to end. And so that, that all those sort of like elements helped me kind of say, you know what, this was the right move to t- t- turn to TV. That makes a lot of sense. And and hearing that it began life as at least an idea for a screenplay, right. I mean, it does present a very sort of straight shot. Right. right. You're telling one story. Right. So how do you start to make that into TV I mean like you said you didn't have any experience in TV so what happened next well so what happened was is that I had worked out in my head um, because when I when I was going to write the feature I started to work out well here's the end of act one and beginning of act two and here's the midpoint and here's some of the the things that will happen along the way and here's how it'll end and I kind of do that along my head and then I and then go and write well when when I did decide to turn it into a TV show, I was like, well, how do I break this up? And and it just kind of, as I thought about all the characters I wanted to introduce and all the little, which is the thing that kind of sidetracked me from finishing it as a feature anyway, mm-hmm. it I realized the first season is kind of the first act, the, those first, what's supposed to be the first 30 pages of a feature. Mm-hmm. 
And um, and that revelation at the end of the first season that Elliot discovers about himself and Mr. Robot, that's really, that's what kicks the movie into high gear. And that, to me, is the, would be the beginning of the second act. And so that's why I always kind of say that the show's probably like four or five seasons long, because if you kind of break, you know, the second act is a little longer than the other two acts, so you kind of break the second act into two seasons, maybe, mm-hmm. and, then, and then you have like the third act, which could be a season... Four and five. I don't know. <laughs> that, but that's, that's my guess. Yeah. There's a shape to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Where the, are you now that you're in the second season, yeah. or even going into the third season? Yeah. Do you find room to sort of go down rabbit holes and explore characters or situations or ideas that you there may not have been room for in that that big narrative? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I have the mile markers mm-hmm. where I know that we have to kind of stay on track and we have to get to this point, but. Um, within that, there's a lot of like uh, interesting storylines that we've developed in the room, and a lot of uh, 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 um, uh, I guess how would I call it? interesting reveals that I didn't quite predict that would that we would take this character down. Sure. But it kind of works, and it hits that it still hits those mile markers that were you know kind of set in my head. So the uh, so yeah, everything everything um, everything is not. Pre-planned. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to say that. But and there is a lot of freedom that we talk about in the writers' room, and, and a lot of great ideas have come out of that. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that writers' room. I'm really curious yeah. to hear how someone who has not been in TV, you know, has been working. You've written screenplays on yeah. your own, then to all of a sudden be writing with you know six to ten other people. What yeah. is that like? Well, what's interesting is is the room is mostly comprised of people like me who work in writing features and not really TV um, because I knew that the mindset of this was we have to think about this as one story not mm-hmm. not a, a story per episode right. um, and, I, and and we also had some great TV writers as well um, and it was just a honestly it's it's trying to just find find the right minds and and um, and I didn't know anything other than what I used to do with my friends which <laughs> was you sit around, uh, you know, someone's apartment. You talk about an idea. They tell you it's stupid. You ask why. They give you a bad reason. You t- you give them you give them the reason why it's bad. They give you another reason that actually sticks. Then it then the story develops into something a little better. And then you get it a little better, a little better, and then incrementally, hopefully, you eventually end up in a good place. And the thing is, most of my friends are writers, so I kind of had that you know, that skill or whatever you want to call it, that way of speaking, and I just carried that into the writer's room, yeah. That's cool. That's the best uh, distillation of a writer's and, room I've heard, too. And, and by the way, our writer's room, I mean, in the first season, because, you know, I was new, it was, you know, kind of the traditional setup, which is like that, yeah, it was basically like a conference room. You had the big table in the middle, and everybody just sat around it. The second season, because I loved that idea of like just hanging out in someone's living room and talking we literally we did away with the conference room table and we just had a living room style thing or had couches and chairs and we kind of sat around the little coffee table and just talked that's awesome yeah that that always and I've heard of this a few times uh, rarely but a few times and it, it always just feels like the most the best way to get real stories and honesty out of like people just have them relax exactly a relaxed environment yeah um so in that first season how did you directed a couple episodes right yeah i directed three so 
First of all, did USA or anyone try to put you with an experienced showrunner? Yeah, it never came up, which I which I thought was odd. But I think what happened was, I mean, odd, but obviously I'm grateful because um, uh, they really trusted me. But I think what happened was in, during the pilot, um, which I didn't direct, I really wanted to direct, but uh, obviously I understood uh, their decision to kind of get someone more experienced, and we had a great director, Nels Ardenopla, to direct the pilot. But they saw how super hands-on and involved I was on set. I mean, the actors were coming to me and asking uh, about their characters, which obviously Nils and I <coughs> had an uh, in-depth conversation about, but it, it all came from my brain. Right. So, um, you know, it was one of those things where... And, and, not just, and you know, not just the actors, but every creative aspect, the production designer, the costume designer, and they kind of just saw that I was I was I was very I had a very specific vision for the mm-hmm. show and um I guess they just from that trusted me to to run it. That's great. And that's the showrunner job, right? right? Is having an answer to all of these exactly, things. Did you yeah. find yourself without an answer uh, as you went through? Absolutely. I mean I you know there were times where I was like, what? I don't know. Like <laughs> they read in the book you know, it um you can you can get trapped in the minutia a lot. The thing about it is is that you then you 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 obviously empower people to sort of make uh, decisions with you and you turn it around and say, well, what do you think, you know? Mm-hmm. Because obviously we have a talented t- talented crew, talented cast, and I consider all of them co-creators in this whole thing, right. so... Well, yeah. that, that's the kind of collaboration you Absolutely, look for, right? Yeah. And you find these great people who do their jobs really well. Exactly. You want to have that crew. Right. Um, so... And so the reason I was asking about directing is I'm curious about, like, the lead time on that first season. And did you guys have to get all the scripts done before you had to go off and prep episodes? Yeah. for You mean for the second season? Uh, for either season. Well, for the first... No, it was actually both seasons. I, I was not... Um, traditionally, the way television works is you write as you right. shoot and you edit and deliver as you write and shoot and right. that is that messed with my brain because again <laughs> feature from feature films the you know you write the thing you yeah. then go shoot the thing and then you go cut the thing they're very three discrete uh, uh, parts of your life and you don't mm-hmm. mix them um, so I struggled a lot in the first season with that because I, I didn't I obviously wasn't used to it but I also didn't love that I mm-hmm. you know I felt like when I was in the edit room I'd rather be on set making sure the scene uh, was shot in the right way and making sure, you know, everybody who had questions on set had the answers to it. And, and then, and then I, I, with the writer's room, thankfully we were able to finish most of the scripts before we started shooting, but to then have to develop another episode, I, I, there would be no way. And so for the second season, uh, because I was directing all of them, we had to get all the scripts done. And um, and then we sort of the air date we, we overlapped a little bit, but I mean obviously I still had to edit um, to, to to deliver the episodes in time, but not it was the overlap wasn't as much. Right, I got you. Oh, that makes sense. So you, had, I, I just I mean, think it works your different parts of the brain. You know, absolutely. all those three different things, and I, I I'm you know I bow down to the sh- to the people that can juggle those three things at any given time. It's well, crazy. I'm curious to hear more about that. Like the the writing part, and so you had a good number of weeks of the writers room sure. during which you yeah, were yeah. writing scripts. The writing part, like what what part of your brain does that satisfy? That's different from the directing or the editing? Well, the writing part of it is the relaxed environment. I, I really honestly think that it is the environment where 
you have to allow yourself three hours to talk about bullshit <laughs> that may never end up in a script. You have to allow yourself to go off on weird tangents and be as creative as possible. Um, yeah, and you have to explore all the different options and all the interesting ways a character can make a choice and, and all the honest ways a character can make the choice. And then you have to go back and revisit those ideas. You just have to have a lot of um, no-pressure uh, conversation um, and, and decision-making. I mean, the decisions in the writer's room, in my opinion, should not be, uh, um, um, you, you should not be fast and they, they should they and they and and they should be very methodical and very um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like just uh, very pre. It's not premeditated, mm-hmm. but um, you should you should definitely ponder it and ponder every because I I think all all the narratives that you the every every choice that you make in the narrative has such a domino effect. That if you at any point, especially if you're t- trying to tell a story that involves mystery or anything like the suspense or anything like that, at any point, you know, you make a bad move, those the, the whole thing can fall apart. Um, so you're always trying to like, you know, it, 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 what's it called? Like when you're trying to iron out the wrinkles, you're always <laughs> going back over and over and yeah. making sure those things. Uh, those things get ironed out and making sure those things actually make sense and making sure those things are honest you're not lying to the audience um, there's just there's just a lot of um, thought that goes into it whereas with directing and, and, and even editing to a certain extent you're, there's a lot more urgency now, now, now the script is done you can't spend hours on every decision you kind of have to start um, you, you have to be you have to plan but you also have to be fast you mm-hmm. know yeah, that makes sense. And and you know the story is rock solid at right. that point. So you're right. making decisions about presentation. Exactly. That's interesting. Um, in in the writer's room, how does how does the story start to take shape for the season for the episodes? I mean, we can look at season two as an example. You must have had a plan coming in. Yeah. So when you convene the writers for the first time, what does the conversation look like? And then, like, on a technical level... Are you writing on the board? Are you, you know? Why well, I, I have terrible handwriting, so I don't. <laughs> I, I, I don't do it. Um, we have better people, with better handwriting to do it. And what I do is I say, you know, I usually will say, here are the the, the major goalposts that we should hit mm-hmm. this season. Here's the next part of the story. So we put that up on the board. That's, so, like, let me interrupt for a second. Sure. And I apologize. I've yeah, no, a few times to sort of dig in. On yeah, things, yeah. But. Like for season two, and let's assume that everyone has seen up to the finale. What are the goalposts that you knew about coming in? God, I mean, you you want me to actually say the yeah. plot points? I'm, no one's going to hear this until the week before the finale. Can I tell you that I still am uncomfortable saying? Really? I am. I am. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not paranoid. All right. That this let's, thing let's will leak. Time. And oh you my know. god. First of all, no, 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 no. I but mean, I'm crazy. Let's it's talk true. about season one then. Okay, great. That is season one. We'll talk about season one. That is amazing. So, um, so, so season one, you convene the writers, yeah. and what did you have to present with them? So season or one two. was was a, a lot more fleshed out. Um, That's why I didn't ask about it. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say this is what I did. I I, I, I would say, okay, so the Steel Mountain hack that has to happen and it has to fail. And that's sort of the midpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, the Darlene reveal, 
that's sort of the beginning of mm-hmm. our of our downward spiral into the finale. And then the finale needs the hack has to happen. No let's and then we kind of put that up on the board. Now I have more details that I actually threw up there as well. Sure. But those those that's what I would say would be oh and and probably when Elliot decides to join F Society and commit, that you know that has to. Happen. So it's like those kind of goalposts are go up on the board first, and then we just start filling in. Well, and we kind of we always start with motivation. Well, how how does Elliot? Why does Elliot decide? What would be the most interesting uh, motivation for Elliot to to that it would take Elliot to actually hmm. join this group? Um, and then what is the emotional? And is it honest and all those different layers and can can and how and then we figure out and then we kind of reverse engineer it. how do we dramatize it to get to that point so always think about that first there's yeah. an interesting thing uh, that happens that certainly happened in the first season which I think you handled really well which is in a story like this you know he's going to join the group right, right. so how do you keep that tension alive for and you guys did it for a number of episodes um was that part of the conversation that first season? Yeah. So I mean, in terms of te- in terms of so like we knew that uh, you know that third episode by the end of the third episode he's going to join Elf Society, and so the question becomes from one to three, what do you so what do you do? What do you, what, what's yeah. that story? Well, again, we kind of reverse engineering, so we know that the big motivation is going to be this um, you know the the discovery that. Evil Corp was aware of his, you know, of the leak which caused his father's death, and so it hits on an emotional level. It hits on a plot level because that's that's what the whole plot, you know, that's what the right. whole F Society hack is all about. So it's it's kind of like perfect, okay? It's it is it's doing two jobs. It's doing and, and it's doing it to great effect. And so when we talk about well, what and this is the part of TV that's very different from features mm-hmm. is well, how does Elliot get there, or how does he not get there? How does he fight against it? And and it's all about reveals. It's all about doling out reveals in an interesting way. Well, how do we reveal that information about his father? And that's not necessarily the moment when he decides to commit right. to it because that was the end of episode two when you kind of you kind of hear the story and you kind of hear the story as troubled kind of relationship with his father. And then we, and then you know, and then other things start to take shape. You know, Shayla, Shayla becomes a reason to not join F Society, to be the, to be a normal person, to have a normal girlfriend, to go to a normal party, and then you upend that with you know. So it's always like finding the conflicts of everyday life that could then interfere with sort of the A storyline of this, you know. You know, thriller, more thriller uh, right. type plot. Well, when when I think that you guys are so smart about it and did so deftly, is tied. They weren't just reveals, and as you said, they're tied to emotion. Yeah, uh, and it really it gives stakes to every single thing that happens. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the one thing that we never want to do is just be a plot driven uh, show. In sure. fact, I think that part of the criticisms of of this season so far has been that where's the plot where's the conspiracy thriller aspect and for me it's like this I mean I kind of take you know, obviously who likes criticism but at the <laughs> same time if that's the criticism I'm happy to accept that because <laughs> right. was, there was a lot of in, intention behind that because I find character more interesting and that's really what TV is uh, TV's medium is all about is that is that it really you can take your time building characters yeah, yeah. it's people people don't 
watch it for the plot in the way they watch movies for right. the story. Right? right. It's about visiting these people every week. Right. And it's the economics of it. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. with a movie, you only have two hours to get through the whole plot. And um, so you can't spend, you yeah. know, 20, a 20 minutes seeing a therapy session, you know. But in TV, you can to a certain extent. You can't bore anybody either. <laughs> and so it is, it's just, it's, it's finding a right good combination of it. Interesting. And I think what you guys also did that, that it would really impress me, especially in the first season, I, I've only seen a couple in the second, obviously, is the function of metaphor. I mean, all of this plot going on serves as metaphor for Elliot's mental state, for the world at large. I mean, it just feels like there's so much to grapple with in putting together this show. There's so many levels, right? There's character and story, as we all have, but there's theme and metaphor and, you know, just so much built into it that, and coming back to kind of where we got sidetracked, how do you start to funnel that into a workable story for the season? Well, so what we do is we kind of just build it like, you know, like, I guess, a, like a house. You build the sort of the foundation. You figure out those uh, kind of big character cho- choices, big character moments, how they affect the plot, and, you know, how we're doling out the plot and how those kind of reveals are happening and, and how they're intersecting with character reveals and how that's causing even more conflict. And then at, there's that stage at the end where we kind of go back through the whole thing. And again, it's like... Iron out, ironing out the wrinkles but we also go back and we also just start to fill in details mm-hmm. and we just start to look at everything from a critical eye of like okay but what are the where, where's the nitty gritty in that and it's it's and that's where you find the moments like the one I was talking about with Dom in the bed mm-hmm. watching because that that's not when you're talking about on the high bird's eye bird's right. eye view of the plot and her motivations you know that's not included in that. Sure. And that's the stuff that gets really interesting. And that's the stuff that actually then goes back and changes the plot and mm-hmm. changes everything. Because then you, then you start to feel like, oh, my God, these are real people. And maybe they don't get this right the first time. Maybe they fuck up. Can I say that? Sorry. Yes. <laughs> oh, I can Okay, cool. Maybe they fuck up a couple of times um, before they get it right. And how do they fuck up? And how can that be interesting? And how can that be real? Um, and then and that it starts that ironing out process exactly, again. <laughs> exactly. And then you go back and you adjust the plot, and you and I mean we do that so many times. And then we go back and do it again, you know. And then we go back and we do we call it a world pass. Well, because because of what the F Society hackers did in the first season. Right. Um, so now we have an economics consultant that kind of goes through us. Well, what does the world look like right now? And, and interestingly enough, it kind of looks very similar to our world because that that process would happen extremely slow. It's not like we would go into the to the apocalypse the next day. Um, that actually is drawn out in a really long time, which I think is great. I mean, obviously, Absolutely. I think I think people would want to see an immediate, <laughs> you know, uh, revolution on the streets type of outlook, but that's not actually what would go on. I mean, the thing would would take time to grow, and I think that's great too because then you get to explore those details mm-hmm. along with your characters who are who are also kind of like growing and getting adjusted to the world too mm-hmm. so then you do that pass and then that changes all you know and it, 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 it gets it gets very overwhelming at times but that's why I, I go back to that thing that's why in the writer's room you just need a lot of time and a lot of pressure because you can't rush that stuff mm-hmm. you know yeah it makes a lot of sense um, so it, it feels like 
you know, by the time you get through talking about an episode, your outline must be so detailed. Like, if you're sending a writer off on script, he or she must know exactly what's in that episode to the beat. Yeah, no, we're, we're very specific when we break every episode. Um, and then, how many writers did you have uh, in the first season and the second season? We had the same number in both. I think we had six or six, okay. six yeah. For how many episodes? Ten, twelve? This year, twelve. Last year, ten. Okay. Which is, that's a great number of writers for that yeah, yeah, number yeah, yeah. of episodes. Yeah. Um, and I assume you took a pass on everything yeah. once it came, yeah, yeah, yeah. were coming in. Of course. Um, when you are working on a script, this is real writer time, but what, it. what does it look like? How do you, like, what does your day look like when you're on script? And that you got to separate writing uh, scripting from the rest of the process right. uh, actually makes this very clear right right um, so what does it look like I mean in terms of just personally how I yeah. write what well, does your day look like uh, well well I don't I still have to be in the writer's room right so right. my day is still going to the to the writer's room so I tend to work at night and that's usually when I even when I b- before I had the show I, I, hmm. I, I was more of a night owl and some people like to write in the mornings I don't get it personally <laughs> Because um, what I like to do is I like to warm up to it, and it's the same attitude that I have in the writers' room. I like to talk about bullshit and and kind of kind of dance my way around the actual thing. I guess, in other words, I like to procrastinate. So what? <laughs> but it's, a lot, it's throat clearing, right? <laughs> exactly. And because because a lot of my writer friends say that they have to turn off the internet, turn off mm-hmm. the phone. I mean, I don't actually do any of that. I read a lot on the I go on the internet I read news I catch up on, on my emails I do whatever I can to avoid writing <laughs> and then eventually somewhere in there it'll hit me oh shit that's what the scene is about or whatever or oh my god I just got an idea and then I start writing and the, the other thing I do is I also have a notepad um, I, I use an app uh, and I just write notes in there and I'll go through there and see if something stimulates me the one thing that I try and do before I actually start writing is get excited about something, mm-hmm. about a, an idea I had, a character moment, a plot moment, whatever it is. Um, I don't want to write something if I'm not excited to write it. If I'm pushing myself to do it, I, I know it's not going to be great. And sometimes I have to, and I know I'm just, let me just get through this scene, let me write that slug line and write the description because... <laughs> That's the stuff that I'm never going to get excited about anyway. Who gets excited about writing this? Song? I mean, maybe some <laughs> some people do, um, but then but then but then eventually, whether it's when I go back and do another pass at it or whatever, I have to hit every moment with some sort of excitement. Um, otherwise, the script isn't finished to me. That's that's great. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you start you write at night. Around what time do you start, or can you get started? Probably, you know, I go, I eat, and, you know, so probably after dinner. Okay. So that's still, that's pretty late. How, yeah. how many hours will you go? I'll go until, you know, two or three in the really? morning. Yeah. That yeah. seems terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it works for me because I've had sure. the whole day to kind yeah. of build up to that moment, you yeah. know what I mean? Um, as opposed to in the morning, for whatever reason, I need, I need to, con- I need to, my, my mind needs to consume uh, other information first before sure. I can rally. I yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, people are really interested with Mr. Robot. The the question I got the most when I said I was coming in here, uh, both from Twitter and from my brother in law, was 
people are really interested in the reality of it. And, and that sort of, it's two things. One is, are the concerns of the show your personal concerns? You know, it's interesting, and this is another thing that I think the show gets criticism for, um, or, or, you know, or maybe, uh, or maybe it's more specifically targeted at me. Mm-hmm. I'm writing a character who has a lot of angst, I mean, he's, I mean, and, and, and by the way, because I know people in tech, um, and it, it's, this is obviously it's not a general thing against everyone in tech, in tech, but because I'm basing this on sort of the few personal experiences I've had in hacker subculture and tech subculture, I'm writing a very specific angsty character who's very anti-establishment, very anti-capitalist, uh, very anti-corporate, um, uh, who rants and raves, has a very kind of somewhat nihilistic definitely narcissistic viewpoint and honestly those are and I find that all that fascinating and interesting um, and um, and he's also got a lot of tremendous self-loathing and um, and I just I and 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 none of that would work without like a great a great actor and a great world that we can put a character like that in mm-hmm. um, and a great way to access who, why he's all those things which is underneath all of that is the interesting part is the pain the loneliness mm-hmm. um, which is one of the big themes of the show the, the, and, I, and I thought and I thought you know the show did a good job um, of being self-aware about that because I don't think we paint Elliot in the best light we paint him very in, in very much in a gray area. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though he's our main character, it doesn't mean he's without flaws. He's a complicated character. He, yeah, and, and 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 hopefully that could come that comes across. Uh, uh, um, but the but the problem is, I feel I and I and I've read this. I think people think that we take what he's saying as seriously as he does, and and to think that almost feels like they're mi- they're missing the point which I'm not blaming them because clearly then we in my you know my job I'm I haven't portrayed my I guess I haven't articulated my point um, and I don't I don't know then that's and that's because I, I you know personally I feel like we're pretty self-aware that Elliot when Elliot goes on a rant I mean in this in the in the Colonel panic episode that just aired a couple days ago um, he goes on this fuck God rant and immediately afterwards he gets embarrassed by it and runs away and I was like okay well that's pretty self aware I mean that's you know that's not the show saying that (laughs) this is some profound um, uh, speech that Elliot's making but in in fact it's 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 comes from the, the Adderall crash that he's just had the the fact that he's in this war with this inner demon and um, and he decides to just take it out on everybody but himself, um, and he's just lashing out, and um, and he does it uh, uh, with this you know this incredibly juvenile rant uh, against religion, against organized religion. And by the way, with your opinions on organized religion notwithstanding, my opinions on organized religion notwithstanding, what he did was pretty still juvenile, right. and um, and you know. But the but the reaction is that the show is presenting that as as like that's no that's the message of the show yeah. and it's it's hard it's hard when you 
the message of the show is, is about Elliot and his journey and how and, and, and where he's at mm-hmm. and m- mentally in that moment not about it, literally what he says it, feel, it feels literal to take it at face yeah. value like that and I, I you know I'm not sure and it feels I, like I mean viewers and critics do and it's interesting to me because nobody gets away with anything on the show Right, like nobody says anything that goes unchecked, right? Which I thought was really interesting, uh, especially in watching that, rewatching that first season. Everyone gets called on their shit all yeah. the time. Absolutely, and um, and look, I, I take I take pot shots at capitalism <laughs> here and there. At, you know, I, you know here, here's another thing that baffles me, which is that we, you know, Elliot in the pilot reprograms his brain to name E-Corp Evil Corp Mm -hmm. Um, which is clearly that's to that's a character uh, insight that's a character beat clearly to show how extreme Elliot is in his beliefs against this this corporation this conglomerate and it also just helps it's a it's an in my opinion interesting stylization for the show Mm -hmm. to then just now the world in this world it's Evil Corp because that's Elliot in his brain deems it that way but then I hear the criticism. Well, God, you guys are so on the nose that you named the bad corporation Evil Corp, and it's just like, well, wait a minute. That, did you watch the first episode? That's not the, the mm. point. That's the kind of the point. And uh, it's there where it gets frustrating, but at the same time, I have to remember these are people's honest reactions, mm-hmm. and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. And it's always, it, that, but I think that's always a risk when you do a show like this or you tell, try and tell a story about a polarizing character like this. You know that it's going to rub people the wrong way. You know. Well, do you think? And this kind of goes back to the first thing we were talking about, which is, you know, we haven't had a lot of examples of a show like this where we are so inside one character I mean it feels like even in Breaking Bad there was a universal truth right there was a sort of objective truth to what was going on and we could be in different characters points of view but here we're so in Elliot's perspective that right the viewer I mean and it, this feels like a job well done that the viewer is going to say this is the point of view of the show, not just of the character. And you are naming it Evil Corp, whether or not that's filtered through. You know what I'm saying? Right, like right. There's no... They don't see the filter. Right, right, right. Well, I, I, you know, personally, I feel like if I'm going to do a psychological exploration of this guy who's very unstable mm-hmm. and mentally ill, you know, the show needs to reflect that. The show needs to reflect that in its tone, in its atmosphere, and as long as it's organic and honest, that I mean, that to me just sort of justifies all of that. Now, having said that, do I want an audience to be completely untethered and and be completely upside down and not know what's real and what's not? Well, the question is, isn't because that to me feels so intellectual. What's real? What's not? I mean. Obviously, there's an objective truth. I'm not trying to be. I'm not trying to play semantics about that. But what I'm, I guess, what I think is, we want every every moment in the show to feel honest. Mm-hmm. And for example, going back to this episode again, Colonel Panic, we have this moment where Elliot gets captured. Um, he gets dragged to this garage, and um, and then you find out that it's all, you know, it's all in his head because this robot is trying to get him to vomit out. 
uh, these Adderall pills, and we kind and we basically tell you almost immediately. Um, now, did, so, so yes, did he get? Did he physically, literally get kidnapped and dragged to a garage and and had some ep poured down his throat? No. Okay, but he he did have those sensations because he ended up throwing throwing up the Adderall, which is exactly the, Mr. Robot's point in doing all of that. And so, to me, that's sort of and, it, and I mean, look, we're splitting hairs, and that's sort of the <laughs> tightrope. That's sort of the tightrope we're walking. Yeah. And um, and for me, hopefully, as long as it's as long as we're not lying, as long as we're not cheating, as long as we're always telegraphing and telling people the uh, telling people where we're going, and we're giving them a sense of as to where we're going, it does. It, it, that's when the, that's when a twist doesn't feel earned. You know, in my opinion, is when. You're not telegraphing, mm-hmm. and at the risk of like spoiling the twist. Right. And I, I, honestly, that, that that probably is a differentiating di- differentiating differentiating factor between all of this is that we, we, you know, I think we really telegraph a lot more than we should, and and for me, that's not a big deal. I, you know, if an, you know, during the first season, everybody pretty much, and their mother pretty much guessed that Mr. Robot mm-hmm. was not real, and I was completely okay with that because again we were not lying to anyone so you could go back and watch it and we were we were very accurate in terms of playing that out and so so when the reveal does happen then it becomes more of an again emotional thing about how Elliot uh, discovers this or how Elliot kind of uh, reacts to this and so now you're watching him and you're and you're less less about being shocked or yeah you know tricked it's actually probably works better because you're not taken out of it by the storytelling. Exactly. You're with the character. Right. Um, That's interesting. I mean, it feels like, and also I should say, like, (laughs) this feels like a conversation that would happen in the writer's room and figuring out a moment. So, (laughs) listener, enjoy that. Um, The other, so the other half of the reality question is just about, you know, the, all of the technical work that's done on the show. You said you have an economist this season who you're working with. I, we've never, um, unless unless it's, in, I mean, if it's impossible, we do not, mm-hmm. we won't, I won't do it, we won't go down that right. road. Um, what we'll do is we'll set up a storyline and we'll say, okay, and then they hack into, I don't know, the car or whatever, and and, and they'll hack in the car, zip car this way. And we, and in fact, this was a storyline that I think we pretty much abandoned. Well, what, here's, what, here's how it evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, we had a character who was hacking into a zip car, and they were going to, like, you know, I don't know, hack the Bluetooth and get into the zip car somehow and then be able to start the car and take off. And we and so that was sort of up on the board. Here's what our character is going to do in this episode, and, 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 we'll, and we're going to figure out the details of how to hack a zip car at some point, but here's what it is. So, like, I went, going back to what I said with the passes... We also do a tech pass. Mm-hmm. So we go back, and now we're doing the tech pass. We get to that story point. Our characters need to happen to the zip car. We do all this research. We talk to our tech consultants. They basically come back to us and say, it would be so ridiculous to hack into <laughs> There's no way you would have to jump through so many hoops. It's kind of ridiculous. It makes no sense. There's really no way to do it. It's, and we're, we're like, come on, is it really hacker? I mean, we're begging them to give us away. <laughs> And then we're all in the Save our story point. Right, exactly. And then we're all in, in the writer's room, and we're like, no, we got to be honest with ourselves. You know, we can't get in. God damn it, but this really screws up that moment. 
And what happens is we come up with even, uh, in my opinion, a better idea. One of the characters is like uses a coat hanger and is like, or we <laughs> could just do this. Break breaks in yeah. break into the car that way. And it becomes that, a nice character moment. Exactly. That's so right. yeah. That's and really and, and uh, you know, yeah. funny. You get a laugh out of it. Get a little laugh <laughs> and then move on. This is, that is actually something I wanted to talk about because I feel like, um, you know, there's so many dramas that are on the air that do not have a sense of humor. Yeah. And it, it you, Mr. Robot has a really good sense of humor and a sense of this world can be absurd and or terrifying and sometimes you have to laugh. Uh, was this built in from the start? A hundred percent. I actually think um, I would describe Mr. Robot as sort of an absurd thriller drama. <laughs> I mean, I would I, absurd would definitely be uh, in the genre of whatever <laughs> whatever it is that our show is um, absurd cyberpunk. I mean, the thing about it is. Elliot, I mean, all our characters, we do, and, and this is, again, one's all intentional, we do put sort of extreme beliefs in them. Um, because, uh, you know, in telling a story like this, in telling, like, a, a story with such global sort of stakes, we, we, we went through sort of global kind of character extremes with, with, with Elliot, with Terrell, um... And and, and and so in doing that, you have to kind of embrace the absurdity. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying about Elliot. Like, he's very angsty and and almost to a juvenile extent. And it's kind of absurd. It's it's a little absurd. Sure. Now, there's merit to it, and we ground it. Uh, and Rami, especially with his performance, grounds it um, in a really human way that's accessible. And again, it's that fine line. But you can't help but include, you know, you can't help but also just uh, have to include the absurdity of the situation, you know? Sure, absolutely. Is this, is Mr. Robot a show that only you could have written? Um, in this way, uh, <laughs> and, and I will say also in the way that we make it, in mm-hmm. the way that we uh, 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 shoot it and... And, 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 and with this kind of this uh, uh, obsession, obsessive details, I think yes, yes. So what? I mean, I guess the, the flip side of that question is like, what's the personal story you're telling? What what of you is in this story? It's that it's that it's that theme of loneliness. I really I really think again I really think that's something that I personally have not seen. That's reflective of my authentic experience uh, of what that means to be. I was I was that guy, and, and maybe still am that guy, that went all the way to the birthday party, looked inside, saw a bunch of people, uh, turned around, and walked away. And it's that kind of social anxiety, and and that kind of um, uh, uh, just disconnection from people that um, that. That, that really kind of spoke to me and really was the one thing that kind of emotionally motivated me to want to write, to tell the story. Oh, Sam, when will you find your Mrs. Robot? Well, I have, <laughs> Emmy, and I love her. It's the rest of the world I have to <laughs> <laughs> deal with. What went into your brain uh, growing up that helped form the storyteller that you are? What was the stuff that you really responded to? Uh, you know, this is probably cliche to say, but... Um, and I have his book right there, but Kubrick was the guy I 
just remember watching his movies and saying, I've never seen anything like this in my life. But, I mean, I also watched Woody Allen, you know, and again, I'm talking about in my early teens, 13, mm-hmm. 14. Um, what, was, lo- what was the first Kubrick stuff you saw? I mean, I, I think I saw... I think I saw Clockwork Orange first, and I was 13, <laughs> and I was like, fuck, <laughs> this is insane. And then and then I did a film festival where I, I mm-hmm. hung out with like my friends, and we stayed up all night and watched every single one of his movies. We tried to watch every single one. I, think, I, don't, I don't think we got through Barry Lyndon. Um, <laughs> but we got through everything else, and then two, I remember right. 2001 blowing me away. <laughs> um, and then, you know, as a, But that, even when I was younger, when I was like maybe five or six, like I was into... The French Connection, and I remember Parallax View. I didn't really understand it, but I like loved the way it felt. I remember mm. it feeling a certain way, and I was like, "Oh, this is cool!" And um, Three Days of the Condor. But then, you know, just to take you up to my then after post high school, I gotta say, then the nineties, you know, other than obviously the Pulp Fiction and you know Reservoir Dogs and all his movies, Tarantino's, but then you got those awesome Paranoid Trill you know, thrillers in the 90s, like, you know, Seven and Usual Suspects and The Game and Fight Club. And um, and I feel like they don't make those movies anymore. But th- yeah. those, are, those are the things that really resonated with me. Yeah. And those are, it's funny, I mean, and this is a conversation that's been going on for a couple of years now, but those are, those are the last gasp of adult like dr- drama, drama or thrillers yeah. or whatever that we kind of only get on TV now. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's unfortunate, but I mean, at the same time, maybe it isn't because TV is kind of like welcoming welcoming that in yeah. in, in a great way, and you have all these different avenues to do it. And honestly, the long form part of it makes it you can kind of go in very perhaps more interesting ways. I, I think you're right. Uh, and then we'll just end by asking you, as we always end, uh, what are you watching on TV these days? Or have you seen any movies that are great? What can you recommend to people? Well, I'm, I love The Night Of. I think mm-hmm. it's so good. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I only saw the two episodes that are out, but I think that's a, that's great. Uh, what else is on TV right now? Um, it's a quiet time. What's that? It's a quiet time right It now. is. So in, in recent... Oh, Stranger Things. Right. Yeah. So good. So good. I've only seen one, but it's so. Oh my god. What are you captures, doing? Captures. I know. I have to. Well, I'm a little busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm gonna try. Jeez. I'm gonna try. You're and just, then, and you're then we together next week's episode, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Mr. Robot. Is currently on. Through when is the finale? September. Probably September. I'm going to guess. Yeah. Um, congratulations. Thank you. And uh, good luck with with future seasons. Thank you, man. Now leaving Nerdist.com.